0: This morning's speaker is Peter Yazzie. Uh, Peter is a professor at the Washington College of Law at American University in Washington. You have his bio, so I won't, um, I won't read it for you. Um, and he's gonna talk to us this morning about public interest exceptions and in copyright, a comparative and international perspective. We'll have Peter's presentation and then we'll have a little reactor panel and we'll uh, Try to save uh, plenty of time for some questions at the end. So, um, without further ado, please welcome Peter. Thanks to John, and thanks to Jim, and Rick, and Carrie, and everyone who's been involved in organizing this wonderful event. Thanks to you for coming. This has been a real opportunity for me because sometimes being forced to organize one's thoughts about a topic actually causes one to progress a little bit in one's understanding of that topic. And this has been the case for me on this topic. You've got the paper, and I'm not actually going to try to summarize it in the in the time I have. Instead, I want to talk a little bit about the journey that Writing this paper, researching it and writing it represented for me because I really ended up in a somewhat different place from the place in which I began. But before I start the journey, let me do a little bit of framing in connection with Fred von Lohmann's wonderful remarks of last night. Fred was inspirational, whatever bad news Fred had to deliver. He he delivered it in a way that was uplifting and ultimately very hope, hopeful in its, its implications. And I think in particular Fred's ultimate invocation of the power of technology as a force that may in, in a sense save us from ourselves where the dilemma that we seem to have gotten ourselves into with respect to restrictive copyright regimes around the world is concerned was something that it was good to hear and it is good to believe in and that I do believe in. I also think that there are movements for social change, including some which many people in this room are strong and effective advocates of, which have a similar kind of liberatory potential, and I'm referring in particular to the open access movement in all of its various forms and degrees. With time, I hope not too much time, these trends and others may loosen the grip that proprietary interest now exercises over copyright, even if internal reform within copyright itself proves difficult or impossible. But the question is, what do we do in the meantime? What reliance can we place on institutions or doctrines that exist within copyright law while we wait to be rescued by technology? or by the rise of open access. And so what I'm here to talk about today is something that's really kind of old fashioned and stodgy in contemporary intellectual property policy discourse, and that is the topic of limitations and exceptions. You notice I didn't say fair use, and I didn't say fair use for a reason that will become clear as I go along today, fair use is is a term with a very specific legal context, a very specific set of cultural reference and my charge in preparing this paper was to think broadly about the functional question of how doctrines that promote important interests in public access to information are represented in the laws of different countries as well as in international agreements. Fair use, although it's a fine te- term, piece of terminology for domestic discourse, doesn't really adequately capture that topic insofar so far as an international perspective is concerned. So I'm going to try not to say fair use today unless I actually mean fair use. I'm going to try to talk instead about limitations or limitations and exceptions. And my premise, as I, as I mentioned, is that <coughs> limitations and exceptions, at least for now, actually matter a lot. That... We are too early in the transformation of the information environment to assume that we can afford not to pay attention to, not to fight for and promote and defend appropriate limitations and exceptions. I think it's even possible that we will have to go on doing this for a long time to come. I think it's even possible that in the longer perspective as well as the near and medium term perspective, there are going to be works under copyright to which students, teachers, artists, writers, technologists, and others, that is library constituents as well as libraries themselves, need to get access for use and can't get access to use through the ordinary system of legal authorization either because it's too costly or it's too inconvenient or because those who own the rights are simply not willing to authorize the uses sought after. It's possible in fact that this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. It's possible because everywhere in the world, the United States is a paradigmatic case but one can cite other instances as well, we get more and more copyright all the time rather than less and less. More and more different kinds of works protected for longer and longer periods of time, again, more and more different kinds of unauthorized uses. And in that environment, as my little epigraph from Peter Brajos was designed to suggest, this topic of limitations and exceptions may actually take on greater urgency, at least for now. So that was the starting point. That was where this this little journey began and it began with another starting point as well and that was an assumption And, and I confess this with some embarrassment but it seems among friends so I can do so. I started out with the assumption that I was going to discover as I went along and organized all this miscellaneous information that the United States had a superior approach to this question of limitations and exceptions. I expected to find that the US approach that, as you know, joins a flexible, situational, dynamic, fair use doctrine rooted in the constitutional right of freedom of expression to a rather small, and with the possible exception of 108, largely unimpressive collection of specific exemptions actually was a model that should be promoted on the international stage. And I haven't entirely abandoned my historical confidence in the value of the United States approach to limitations and exceptions. But I certainly have been shaken by this exercise. And I think that if it has done me any good, it is that it has undermined, has has called into question my original assumption of what might be called American exceptionalism, where limitations and exceptions are concerned. When you begin to look at United States law in comparative perspective, especially when you look broadly at the context in which the United States law of limitations and exceptions operates, as well as narrowly at that law itself, cracks, flaws, imperfections in the design appear. And that's particularly true, I think, with respect to the fair use doctrine. Now, I am not going to repeat here today, and partly I'm not going to repeat it because I don't honestly believe it, the conventional, current, fashionable critique of fair use in the United States. That is to say that it is too vague, too uncertain, too unpredictable to be of value to users, that you never know what fair use is until you hire an expensive lawyer and even then you're not sure. That critique were it correct, could be met rather directly through a series of initiatives, some of which are underway, some of which I'm actually involved in, to bring greater definition, clarity, and predictability to the fair use doctrine as it applies in particular realms of disciplinary practice. That is a superable rather than an insuperable objection to the current functioning of fair use in the United States. But there's some other problems that I think are not so easily brushed aside, brushed aside is the wrong word, so not so easily worked on than that one. And they have to do, as I said a moment ago, with context. Not with the doctrine itself, but with the setting in which the doctrine appears. One has to do with this claim we like to make and that the courts occasionally confirm for us in, in vague and general language that fair use somehow has a constitutional foundation and therefore can be regarded as a solid thing, something which can't easily be swept away by judicial decision or legislative action. And as, as I suggest in the paper, that claim for the constitutional necessity of fair use, even though at a theoretical level it operates relatively strongly, operates only poorly and intermittently at a practical level. In fact, As I also suggest in the paper, there is an emerging case for the proposition that doctrines of limitation and exception other than fair use, doctrines that exist in other countries in Europe in particular, may actually have stronger, more robust constitutional or at least quasi-constitutional foundations than does fair use in the United States. In the paper I talk a little bit about the developing connection in the jurisprudence of the European Union and of member states of the European Union between limitations and exceptions on copyright on the one hand and economic, cultural and social human rights on the other and of course Ashdown against. The Telegraph, which I discuss, is the preeminent case law authority on that relationship. This idea that there is a human right to information access, which may sometimes actually trump copyright, is a very powerful idea. And I I hasten to say that it's in its very earliest stages of development in European jurisprudence of human rights. But it has enormous promise, and it's something that we ought in the United States, it seems to me, to watch with a great deal of interest and a good deal of humility, given how poor a job we, and by we, I mean progressive copyright policy advocates, have done over recent time in firming up, developing, actualizing the constitutional dimension of our doctrine of fair use. So that's one contextual problem. The constitutional link that fair use enjoys to the First Amendment may be actually less than meets the eye, and that in turn may give rise to some doctrinal vulnerability in the future. The other contextual problem is different. You can't see it unless you widen the frame even more broadly, and that is the problem of remedies. Because although I think claims for US exceptionalism in the field of limitations and exceptions may be unjustified, there is one area in which the United States can claim an approach to copyright law that is absolutely unique in the world, that has been imitated nowhere, probably shouldn't be, and that is... Critical to our understanding of the context in which limitations and exceptions offer, and that it will operate, and that is the field of remedies, the United States has got civil and criminal remedies for copyright infringement, which are so severe and so open ended in their operation that they make any wrong guess or miscalculation about the scope of a limiting doctrine use, for example, a very very serious matter. We have, despite all of our pious protestations to the contrary, a copyright system which on both the civil and criminal side is becoming increasingly punitive rather than compensatory in its treatment of law violators. And as a result, even a minor infraction against copyright law can theoretically and in some cases actually land the violator in a very, very difficult place, if not behind bars. This is not true, to my knowledge, anywhere else in the civilized world. And as a result, if we look at limitations and exceptions in comparative context in a larger frame, we begin to see that, however excellent our precepts concerning this subject may be in the United States all of that preceptual value is to some extent undermined or canceled out by our extraordinarily uh, punitive approach to copyright remedies. So what do I get out of that little first step in the journey? I, I guess I got two things. One is the idea that we need to think very broadly if we're going to compare national laws <coughs> with respect to limitations and exceptions. And the other was this idea of a trumping right. This idea that there really should be, if we're going to make progress, if we're going to protect and defend and extend and promote the concept of limitations and exceptions, a shared consensus that there are some circumstances in which a limitation on copyright imposed for purposes of promoting public access actually should prevail over other legal norms. And I'll come back to that notion of the trumping right and the significance of the trumping right in a moment. Let me say in passing that I also expected to find, especially when I began to do a more granular comparison of United States law and European law, that United States law would emerge in in a kind of a superior position in that comparison because we have in this country so far done so little and so late, but mainly so little to put into practice notions of moral rights. I began with the theoretical notion that moral rights, European style, or more broadly I should say, in the style of civil law jurisdictions generally, are a burden on users, potentially, and a constraint therefore on the recognition and identification of meaningful limitations and exceptions. And of course, as I say in the paper, what I discovered as I went along is that although that burden is a real one, it is often less real than common law observers of civil law, moral rights traditions may expect. Moral rights it turns out are porous, in ways that I think the general publicity that they receive in U.S. copyright circles does not fully recognize or acknowledge. So the porosity of moral rights is another kind of subsidiary finding, I guess you might say, that that occurred to me along the way in this journey. Now, so at this point, at this point in, the, in, the, in, the, in my, my little intellectual journey, I, I began to feel somewhat shaken. Um, uh, the premise from which I began, which was the sort of t- typical American lawyers premise, starting any comparative law exercises, that, namely that we do it best and that the rest of the world could learn from us, was already by this point in my inquiry significantly undermined. Nevertheless, I continued on my journey, still clutching to my increasingly shredded scrap of certainty. And indeed, I found in a, in, a, in, a, in a few places reinforcement for my original position. I found, for example, in the paper details that, that there are some situations in which Fair use can really be described as being superior, superior in its constitution, superior in its operation and effect to equivalent doctrines like, for example, fair dealing as it operates in most other common law countries. However, there are also significant exceptions to that generalization. And I would, from that standpoint, call your attention to... the the extended quotation that appears toward the end of the paper at page 21 from the recent Canadian Supreme Court decision in CCH Canadian Limited Against Law Society of Upper Canada, which represents an application of fair dealing under Canadian law, which really outstrips in its scope and import anything that one could expect from a United States court under similar circumstances applying the law of fair use. And that's not just a matter of the particular analysis in which the court engages on the particular facts of that library photocopying case. That's also a matter of the premises from which the court begins. Look at the first paragraph. As Professor Weber has explained, says the Supreme Court of Canada, user rights are not just loopholes. Both owner rights and user rights should therefore be given the fair and balanced reading that befits remedial legislation. Imagine the United States Supreme Court saying that. Imagine the United States Supreme Court using the phrase user rights. We all know that there is no such thing as a user right in the United States. We all know that fair use is a mere privilege or merely an affirmative defense or if we believe the content industries doesn't exist at all, Here's a Supreme Court applying fair dealing law talking about a category of user rights and following through to the results that that identification of such a category implies. Well, that was a little unsettling, I have to say. And then I began to look at specific exemptions. I thought, well, here at least my initial biases are going to be vindicated. I'm going to discover that these specific exemptions, although quaint, Fred von Lohmann mentioned to me other, earlier the, the Italian exemption for musical performances by marching bands uh, <laughs> as, as an example of the sort of quaintness that although, although quaint and interesting, they were largely non-functional and cosmetic. Well, some are and some aren't. At the very beginning of the paper, I cite two recent instances, one from France, the other from Hungary, both of which indicate the potency or the potential potency of specific exemptions. The French case, which many of you have seen, involves a finding, still I'm sure likely to be appealed, perhaps even eventually reversed or modified, but a judicial finding nonetheless that the use of technological protection measures in connection with the distribution of digital, uh, excuse me, of DVDs violates the explicit reserved exemption for private copying that has long been a part of the French intellectual property code. That's a remarkable decision, especially if you compare and contrast it with United States case law on similar topics and it indicates how a specific exemption, in this case private copying, narrow in its scope and application may sometime function in effect as what I referred to earlier as a trumping right. And then there's this Hungarian case which doesn't involve an old specific exemption like the UDF case but involves actually a very new one the specific exemptions that were written into Hungarian law last year in response to the 2001 EU directive, which have the effect of authorizing the creation of a national network of library workstations through which libraries and patrons are free to share and access any content found in digital form in any library anywhere in Hungary. Not bad. Um, Whether it holds up is another question, and it's a question to which I want to turn in a moment. But it's an example, again, of the potential potency of specific exemptions. Now, specific exemptions also include rights of equitable remuneration. I don't talk very much in in the paper. And I I think that's a fault of the paper and one that I would like to correct in the next draft about the equitable remuneration aspect of limited specific exemptions as they operate in many countries. That is laws that we might call compulsory licensing schemes that authorize a particular use upon the payment of a certain stipulated sum. That approach, as you know, has been applied through much of Europe to many different forms of private copying and it has the potential, a potential which is beginning to be realized in Europe to provide in addition a practical solution, a solution that gives something to all interested parties that strikes anew the balance to which the Canadian Supreme Court refers to the problem of peer-to-peer distribution of copies of copyrighted works it's also important to note and here i'm i'm shifting a little bit into the next stage of my my journey and in inquiry it's also important to note that this approach the exemption coupled with the right of equitable remuneration is very much in danger in europe as a result of the rise of digital rights management technology and the recognition of digital rights technology and the importance of protecting it from circumvention in the 2001 directive and in the national laws of the countries that are implementing that directive. The the theory is that digital rights management, legally supported, supported that is by anti-circumvention legislation, will render rights of equitable remuneration irrelevant that digital rights management will permit direct licensing from source to consumer of works that will make the equitable remuneration, the compulsory licensing approach a thing of the past. That it seems to me is a very real problem, a very real threat to one of the most powerful and effective aspects of limitations and exceptions carried forward through specific exemptions that is now known to the world and one that has to be watched very carefully and resisted to the extent that resistance is possible. So let me now talk about other threats, threats on the international horizon to the concept of limitations and exceptions in general and to the practice of limitations and exceptions under different national laws. I mentioned two in the paper, but I want to talk about a third today. which. Peter Hurdle reminded me after dinner last night and that is of course licensing. To the extent that content begins to be available in or primarily in or only in licensed forms, that is distributions that are subject to agreed upon terms and conditions, all of this law of limitations and exceptions that we are talking about here today may be rendered irrelevant. Now, once again, the notion of the trumping right comes into play. If limitations and exceptions have strong constitutional or quasi-constitutional foundations, then there is an argument to be made for the proposition that they ought to prevail over conflicting terms and conditions even when those terms and conditions are included in license agreements which have nominally at least been freely agreed to. This is an idea which in the United States we talk about as preemption and it's an idea which, as many of you know, has not in fact gone very far in practice. The battle to establish the superiority of the limitations and exceptions contained in the United States law over conflicting contractual terms and conditions has really not progressed far toward victory which is a very charitable way of describing the current situation. We're going to see this situation, this problem, the conflict between license terms and limitations and exceptions contained in general legislation or jurisprudence in other countries as well and it's going to be very important to try to figure out ways of resisting that trend. I don't think we can resist the trend toward licensing as such. My guess is that it's going to be impossible in the emerging information environment to insist that content be made available, whether to libraries or to individual consumers consumers in a free form, unencumbered by license terms. Which means that it's going to be all the more important to promote through case law, through test cases, through legislative campaigns or otherwise, this notion that at least in core circumstances, limitations and exceptions based on a vision of public interest must prevail over, must trump, the private terms of license agreements. So that's the first big threat to limitations and exceptions in national laws, which has the potential to render them increasingly in a increasingly digitized information environment irrelevant. The second we've talked about already a lot, myself today a little and Fred last night much more and much more more eloquently and that is digital rights management technology and accompanying anti-circumvention legislation to the extent that any kind of limitation on user access or Reuse of material can be encoded in an encryption scheme, imposed on a work. The question of limitations and exceptions in national law once again is risks, or is at risk of being, I should say, pushed to the margins of irrelevance. And here we have a, a fairly dismal story to to, to tell about how national legislatures have in their enactment of anti-circumvention legislation incorporated and made meaningful traditional limitations and exceptions to copyright law. A fairly dismal story because for the most part the answer is little if at all. This anti-circumvention legislation, para-copyright legislation as I refer to it in a few places in the paper, is relatively absolute in terms, whether it's the United States version, the DMCA, the European versions that are arising all over the continent or the versions that are being forced on trading partners of the United States around the world through the process of bilateral and multilateral free trade agreements, this post-trips diplomatic process to which Fred referred so effectively yesterday evening. I think it's fair to say that in national anti-circumvention legislation there has been a general failure to incorporate and come to terms with traditional limitations and exceptions and unfortunately even some countries which began the process of trying to meaningfully accommodate anti-circumvention legislation to traditional limitations and exceptions have given up under United States pressure and the primary and outstanding example of that as I refer to it in the paper, is of course Australia, which began on its own interesting, in itself controversial, but creative path to try to bring anti-circumvention legislation and traditional limitations and exceptions into some kind of synchronicity, and gave up once the free trade agreement with the United States is concerned. I say gave up, not that every Australian gave up. There are powerful and interesting, and 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 admirable movements within Australia in resistance to this trend. I mean, of course, the Australian government gave up. Now there is room for pushback on this issue. Um, uh, H.R. 1201, to which Fred referred last night, is a piece of domestic legislation in the United States which although it wouldn't complete by any means, the process of correcting the imbalance that anti-circumvention legislation has introduced into the scheme of limitations and exceptions would at least begin it. And at least in my view H.R. 1201 deserves support in the United States. Then there are other bright spots and the brightest of them is of course Canada to which I refer toward the end of the paper. I would draw your attention in particular to footnote 61 on the very recent announcement of the Canadian law reform teams that have been working on bringing Canadian copyright into the digital age about the approach to the implementation of any circumvention which Canada intends to take, an approach which, if actually taken, would deviate significantly from the cookie cutter model that the United States is trying to impose on the rest of the world by accommodating limitations and exceptions to a far greater degree. So those are two threats and I'll mention very briefly because my time is running out a third. And the third is a background threat that in some ways I think at least in the context of international jurisprudence perhaps the most troubling of all and that is the rise to supremacy in the international law of copyright of the so-called three-part test, the three-part test that began its life as a subsidiary provision of Article 9.2 of the Berne Convention which under certain circumstances authorized countries to make particular limitations and exceptions and became when it was incorporated as Article 13 of the TRIPS agreement in 1994, a general restriction on limitations and exceptions of all different kinds. This is very bad news, because not only is this now a general international law restriction on national law innovation in the field of limitations and exceptions, but it's also a justiciable one. Unlike the Berne Convention's provisions on limitations and exceptions, which were always essentially hortatory in effect, this one you can take to court. The court in question being, of course, the dispute settlement body of the WTO and it's beginning to happen. And it happened for the first time, of course, in the Section 110 decision of the dispute settlement body, which was a challenge by Europe to a particular commercially oriented limitation on copyright in United States law which produced a decision which may or may not have significant precedential value, which is in terms not of its particular outcome on the particular fact, but in terms of its interpretation and understanding of the three-part test itself, extremely disturbing because extremely restrictive. If that's not bad enough, there's something worse. And that is that the Section 110.5 decision, although brought by, in a, although rendered in a matter brought by Europe against the United States, was essentially a collusive decision. The United States nominally defending a national law limitation and exception was in fact deeply complicit in its Rejection under the three-part test as evidenced by the fact that the United States declined to appeal this very, very restrictive interpretation of the international law standard. I worry about this a lot. I worry that in other cases where it is possible for global copyright interests to find a country or countries that are willing to bring a challenge to national laws, whether they're the laws of the United States or the laws of some other countries, under Article 13, we may discover national governments lying down in the face of those challenges rather than standing up to them. So we have to watch very, very carefully the emerging jurisprudence of Article 13 at the international level. That's the bad news. The good news is that nobody really knows, apart from this one decision, what Article 13 means. Article 13 is interpreted in light of the in effect legislative history of Article 92 of the Berne Convention, which is except very, very thin and paltry. So there's lots of room to push back on the issue of the interpretation of the three-part test, especially through the development of clear statements of state practice in the field. Because as those of you who are international lawyers know, when an international norm is unclear, state practice, what countries actually have done and are doing, matters a lot as an aid to interpretation. Which brings me to my conclusion, which is a suggestion that I hope might be on the agenda for your session tomorrow morning. And that is that it is time past time, in fact, for the creation of a comprehensive statement of best practices in the field of limitations and exceptions, drawing material from the best sources everywhere in the world. A hybrid approach, in effect. It could be in the form of a model law. It could be in the form of provisions in the proposed access to knowledge treaty. It could be in the form of scholarly contributions. But it's urgently, urgently required. Whether we are going to push back against the encroachment of the three-part test, whether we're going to insist on the incorporation of meaningful limitations and exceptions into digital rights management schemes, or whether we are going to fight for a trumping right or a set of users' trumping rights that can overcome attempts to deprive users of access through restrictive licensing terms and conditions, the existence of that hybrid composite statement of best practices in the field of limitations and exceptions is something that is urgently required as a point of reference, and I'll stop there. Thank you very much.